Welcome to the Gathering Church Podcast. We are so glad you're joining us today. For more info about The Gathering, you can check out thegathering.online. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Here's today's message. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now God tells Abram to pick up the rest of the family and take them where I will show you. Meaning God has not told Abram where he's going at this point. He gives him just enough instructions to get going. Don't you hate it when God does that to you? It's like, sure, God, let's do it. Where am I going? Well, just take the first step. Yeah, but what's like the 10th step or the 15th step? God does not always share that information with you. And he starts by saying, I will make a great nation out of you. That sounds great. But remember, at this point, Sarai is barren. She's not been able to conceive. So God says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. I will bless you and make your name great. Why? He says, so that you will be a blessing. God says, the reason that I will do this for you is so that you can then be a blessing to other people. I will bless you so you can bless others. I don't know about you, but when God blesses me, I do not want to be the reason that it stops with me. I do not want to be the reason that someone else doesn't receive a blessing because I want to hold it all for myself. Anybody else with me? The blessing will not stop with me. And God invites Abram to become the source of blessing for the rest of humanity. Think about it. Through Abram, the people of God are going to experience his favor. And I want to challenge you today to not just desire the blessing of the Lord, but to be willing to be a means through which God will bless others. We see here from this passage, from the beginning, that was God's intent for a blessing. He hopes to bless us so that we can bless others. So we are blessed to bless, and we're going to look at three steps of how we can be a blessing through what the scriptures say. And in order to be a blessing, we have to change our perspective on how we look at our finances. How do we view money? Now, we know what the world tells us about money, right? They say money's going to make you happy. Money's going to satisfy you. It's going to fulfill you. People make a lot of sacrifices in order to gain more money. Right? People work longer hours. Uh, people will give up flexibility and comfort in their life. All these things they'll do in order to gain more wealth. And don't get me wrong, there are times where you have to work harder, you have to put in more hours to provide for your family. But what is your perspective on money? Look at what Hebrews chapter 13 says. Verses 5 and 6. It says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper I will not fear, what can man do to me? So this is the last chapter of Hebrews. And the author is concluding his book with a list of morals, of do's and don'ts. He says, do continue to show love to one another 
do not neglect to be hospitable towards one another, do not commit adultery, and then he says, keep your life free from the love of money. The literal translation of that says, make sure your character is free from the love of money. Another way to say that is that a love of money can cause your character to be in question. And then what does the author say to do instead? He says, be content with what you have because God will not leave you and he will not forsake you. Be confident in the provision. Be content with what he supplies. This is the foundation to be a blessing. If you want to be a blessing, number one, contentment is key. You cannot bless other people if you're focused on what you want. You can't be trying to gain more wealth for yourself and be looking at how to be a blessing for someone else at the same time. And contentment protects you from wanting more because you remind yourself of what God's promises. You say, I, I don't need to provide more for myself. God says he's never going to leave me nor forsake me if I'm content. You cannot be content and love money at the same time. And that temptation, that, that greed can cause us to make foolish decisions. Decisions you wouldn't normally decide, but when you have a love of money, when that's your first focus, it twists your thinking. People and relationships over money. People betray people for money. People kill people for money. These are the types of things that happen when money becomes your idol. Look at what Paul says about it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3-6. through 6. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness accompanied with contentment, that's the actual gain. What Paul is warning us of here is the pitfall of pursuing God only for a means of gain. You might say, Matt, what's, what's wrong with pursuing God? I thought we're supposed to be pursuing God. We are, but not as a means of gain, not to try to get something out of God. I believe there are blessings that accompany honoring and obeying God, but the reason that we follow God is not just because of what we get from God. We have to be very careful here because when we do that, when we treat our relationship with God like that, we make it a transactional relationship. We say, God, if I do this, you have to do that. And then when we hold up our end of the bargain and God is still not answered in the way that we want them to, we say, God, what's going on here? Where's the mistake here? We cannot treat God as a, re, as a transactional relationship. He says, if, you're, if your only godliness, if your only reason to pursue him is a means of gain for yourself, you're doing it the wrong way. But if godliness with contentment, that's the great gain. 
God is not a cause and effect relationship. He is supposed to be the Lord of our life. And so living a godly life, godly life is not a means of gain of what we want in life. It's to glorify God, period. Why? Because he sent his son to earth to die for our sins. And so when things don't go right in our life because our life isn't going to be perfect and then we treat this relationship with God as transactional, we lose our faith and we blame the one who is blessing us. So Paul explains, don't be someone who uses godliness as a means of gain. If you want actual gain in your life, you have to choose to be godly and content. That's going to lead to the great gain. Be content with what you already have because money will not make you happy. I've seen people that have very little in their life be much happier than people that have a lot. It's not a direct correlation of happiness and wealth. But you can be content at any level with any amount. Living a godly life and being content. And the meaning of that word content here, the definition is to be self sufficient. It means I don't need something externally to satisfy me. I am sufficient as I am because of what God's given me. Being content and godly is the key to great gain. Let's look at what Paul says next. After he says that godliness with contentment is great gain, he says this, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Paul explains how we can be content, and it's by reminding ourselves that our real home is heaven. We lose contentment when we focus on the world and what the world has to offer us. Think about advertisements. Advertisements do not want you to be content. They say this new home would be way better. Oh, this new house would be so much better for you. And it never truly satisfies you because there's always going to be another thing. There's always going to be a next model. There's always going to be a next year. If you lack contentment, you're always going to be searching for more. There was a survey in the 90s where people were asked, how much money would you need to make in order to have the American dream? And people that made $25,000 or less They average to say, if I made around $54,000, I would have the American dream. They ask people who made around $100,000 a year, how much would you need to have the American dream? They said, they average around saying, we would need about $192,000 a year to have the American dream. Do you see what I'm saying here? There's a man named Bernard Baruch, who was an American financier, And he made a fortune off the New York Stock Exchange. He was the chairman of the War Industries Board during World War I. He advised President Wilson on the terms of peace to end World War I. He was also an advisor to President Roosevelt during World War II. 
he formulated policies at the United Nations. This man was extremely wealthy. He understood the economics of wealth. He had a great resume, if you can imagine, all those things, putting that on a resume. And somebody asked him, how much money does it take for a rich man to be satisfied? And Bernard responded, just a million more than he has. What does that mean? You will never be satisfied. You will never be content if you're seeking for more money. It will always lead you to wanting more and more. You'll never be satisfied. Contentment is rare in today's world. And even if there are dreams and hopes that you can have something in the future, of course, we can hope for things, we can have goals for things, but can you have peace now while you don't have it? Or is your peace attached to that future hope? One of the things that Paul lists out in there is he says envy. Envy tries to poison your contentment. So we need to monitor how our heart responds to things in our life. You know, keeping up with the Kardashians. Watching your friends put on an addition to their home. How does that make you feel? You should be happy for them, not envious of them. Monitor how these things make you feel. And Paul says, if you want to be content, focus on the fact that this place, we can make a great life for ourselves here, but this isn't our home. Paul says, if I've got food and clothes, I've really got enough to make it through this life. And again, this is not a message against having nice things and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but Paul is protecting us from the mindset of obsessing over money. Protecting us from the get rich or die trying mentality. Paul doesn't say that money is evil. He says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Depends on your perspective of money. You can lose your faith because you put your trust in the wrong things and then you begin to blame God. The love of money is the root of all kinds of problems. So the first point is contentment is key. And number two, money is a resource, not a ruler. It's a resource. Money can be a great asset, but when it rules your thoughts and desires, it leads to destruction. Look at what Jesus said about the master of money in the parable of the dishonest manager. If you've got your Bible, you can look at Luke 16. Luke records a lot of what Jesus has to say about money and possessions. I believe I saw that out of the 38 parables of Jesus, 16 of them have to do with money and possessions. Let's read the beginning of the story, Luke 16, verses 1 and 2. Jesus also said to the disciples, he said there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now let me pause there for a moment. You could, in a lot of these parables, talks about the owner, the rich man, the Father, who, who is that comparing to for this metaphor? It's God, right? God is the owner. He's the Father. And in this, he's the rich man. It's interesting because a lot of people say, you can't be rich and go to heaven. Well, God is comparing himself here to a rich man. And he gets upset with the steward that he has because he's not taking care of his accounts right. So he says to pull him back in and say, give me the account, you're done. 
There's a lot of metaphors going on in this parable, but I want to remind you that we are all, at the end of our life, going to be responsible to God to give an account for what we've done with our life. How we've stewarded our finances, how we've managed things in our life. And the, the, the rich man is, is upset with the, with the manager. He says, give me, give me your account. You're, you're done with your job. And I'm going to paraphrase what happens next. But the manager panics. He's like, if I don't have this job, how am I going to provide for my family? How am I going to survive? He's like, I can't work with my hands. I don't do manual labor. I, I'm not going to beg for money. So he says, I need to make friends who are going to allow me to stay with them and keep me during these times when I have no money. So the manager devises this scheme. He calls all the master's debtors to him and says, hey, what do you owe the master? And they say, you know, 100 of this or 50 of this. He says to each of them, cut your debt in half, and I will present this to my owner before I'm fired. In an attempt to make friends with these debtors so that they would watch over him when he's fired and has no place to go. And so he makes friends in this way, and this is what the master says when he finds out. Read verses 8 and 9. It says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. It's interesting that the master acknowledges the savviness of this manager. And then Jesus says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing than the sons of light. This is a reminder that we should be pursuing God with the same, same passion as someone that's dealing with the sons of light. Or someone that's dealing with pursuing the American dream. The sons of darkness, they, they desire money. We should desire God with that same compassion, with that same conviction. And then it's interesting that Jesus says, make friends through unrighteous wealth. And he says, so that when it fails, not if it fails, when it fails, remind you that money is going to fail you. It is not going to fix all your problems. It can do some great things. It's a great resource. It's a lousy ruler. When it fails, you will have, what does he say at the end? You will, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. When we look at money as a resource, we don't allow it to rule us. We can give that resource away and make a difference in the world. Make an opportunity for someone else to come to Christ. That's why we believe in giving. That's why we give to missions. I remind you, don't miss out in two weeks. We're going to have an opportunity for us to give to places that we may never go in our life. You and I may never step outside of the United States or into South America or Africa, but you can make a difference by your giving. There are people that you can see in heaven one day that are there because of your contribution. You realize that? In the eternal dwellings, Jesus says at the end of that parable, you can use unrighteous wealth to make friends. Let, let me give you an example. When it says unrighteous wealth, 
The word there in the Greek is mammon. It's not just money, it means materialism. It's a spirit of materialism. Saying you can use your resources to make friends and to glorify God. Let me use an example for you. There was a pastor uh, in Bethel Church that tells a story named Chris Ballatin. And this man really loved to play basketball. Elijah, are you listening? He loved to play basketball. And he was talking about how he would go to the YMCA and he loved playing the games, but he wasn't very good. He was a little bit bigger. He was a little bit slower than some of the other guys. And they would make fun of him when he would come to play and play a pickup game with everybody. He would be the last one to get picked, all these things. So he's struggling to figure out how do I influence these people when I'm not very good at the game. And one day he hears one of the best basketball players at the front desk struggling to pay for their membership. And so Chris decides, I'm going to use my resources to pay so that this man can have a year-long membership. Guess what happens after that? They become friends. All of a sudden, he's not picked last. He's not treated poorly in the basketball game. And he has an opportunity, at least, to make a difference with this person sharing his faith at some point. That's what can happen when money is a resource in your life and not a ruler. And I, I personally enjoy that story as someone that loves to play basketball, that I can use it as a way of wealth to make influence on the people around us. I used to play basketball all the time. And there was, um, during COVID, you know, we weren't getting together and playing, but I had relationships with these guys. And one day I was just sitting there and I felt like I was supposed to Venmo one of them some money to let them know that God loves them. Like, hey man, I don't know if things are tough for you right now. I don't know if you're working or not, but I just felt like God says, you're supposed, I want, I'm supposed to give you some money to help you out. Hope it blesses you. Hope you're doing well. That's how you can use unrighteous wealth. That's how you can use a resource that God gives you. And after that, look at what Jesus says next in verses 10 through 12. He says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Money, it's a, it's a resource, right? It's not a ruler. It can be used for good things or bad things. It can be used to bribe someone to do something wrong. It can be used to draw friendship in a relationship. And one more example that, that role in money and material play in your life. Jesus says, if you are faithful in the little things, you are faithful in the big things. And then what does he say next? He says, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who is going to entrust the true riches to you? Jesus is comparing the little things and unrighteous wealth. You notice that? And then he says the big things, that has to do with true riches. As if to say that mammon and materialism and money, those are all small things in life compared to the eternal true riches. And he says when, when we can handle the small things, that doesn't just mean quantity. That means the importance 
That means authority. If you can't handle money well, how can you handle spiritual matters well? How can you handle spiritual stewardship over your life if you can't handle natural stewardship? I would encourage you in your life, before asking God for more finances, would you first ask, say, am I stewarding wisely what God has already given to me? Because why should God give you more if you're not already spending wisely with what you have? Jesus is saying you have to be faithful in the small things, and money is a small thing compared to spiritual stewardship over your life. Spiritual stewardship over the people that he has entrusted to you, your family, your co-workers. If you're not stewarding that well, why should he expect you to steward finance as well? And then this is the last thing that Jesus says from Luke 16, 13. He says, no servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve God and money. When you serve God, your money and your materials are used as a blessing. When you serve money, money rules over you and you ignore the submission to God. That's a really good point, but okay. <laughs> money is a resource, not your ruler. It's a tool. It's not your treasure. As we close today, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 9. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians about giving to the saints in Jerusalem. He's essentially getting ready to take an offering. And, and Paul's coming to pick up this offering. And we're not going to read the beginning first five verses, but I encourage you to read it for yourself because I think there's not a lot of times where we see this, but I think here there's some sarcasm from Paul. If you notice what he's saying, he's saying, I don't need to tell you guys to give, but you guys should give generously. You guys already know what you're doing, but I'm just going to let you know anyways. You know, we can't tell over text. It's like when someone's mad and a text message and there's excessive punctuation or there's no emojis. Like we can't tell for sure, but we're trying to just get a, a feel for what Paul is saying here. But after he explains that they should give, he explains the manner in which they should give. And that's what he says, 2 Corinthians 9 Verses 6 through 8. He says, The point is this whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you have all sufficiency in all things. At all times, you may abound in every good work. I briefly mentioned this beginning of this passage last week as we closed. Saying so you can give any amount, but just know the amount in which you sow is also what you're going to reap. And then Paul says, each one should give as they have decided. Each one. Another word for that is every one. Every person should be part of giving. The amount may change very, very to person to person, but each person should decide in their hearts to give. I hope we have 100% participation when we give and go ye in two weeks. 
even if that's just a few dollars for you, I, I hope that each person you can decide in your heart to be part of something bigger than yourself. It says every person should give as decided. As usual, God cares more about the state of your heart than the action of your hands. First comes first. God cares about the heart. Not that you're forced into giving. Not that you feel pressured into giving. The amount's going to vary, but each person should give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. Meaning you're not giving and complaining at the same time. You know how, how odd that seems to be giving and upset at the same time? In that case, just keep it for yourself. If, it's, if your heart's not in it, why would you do it? I'm sure we've all been in situations in our life where we felt pressured to give to something. Like, oh man, Salvation Army's at my door again and I gotta give them something. I don't even know if they do that, but everyone should give out of their heart, not the compulsion, not, not the pestering. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. Last point today as we close, when we give to be a blessing, we should give generously and joyfully because God loves a cheerful giver. There's something about joy that should accompany our giving. You know, when you're, when you're looking to give a gift for somebody at Christmas or their birthday and you found that perfect thing that you know is going to cause joy in them, it's going to make them excited, how do you give it to them? You don't go, here, I got this for you. Hope you like it. No, I hope not. You say, hey, you got to open this up. I'm really excited for what I got you. Doesn't that make all the difference in the world? Both in how we send things, how we give things, and how we receive them. Think about Go Ye services over the year. There's a lot of pictures from past years at Radiant Life where there were kids giving in the offering with smiling faces. I'm sure not every kid was happy the entire time they went around the sanctuary, but for the most part, we don't want pictures of them going like this, giving to offering, right? That feels awkward. God loves a cheerful giver. Giving is meant to be a joyous occasion. We give with joy because why? We give because we love God. And God is the ultimate cheerful giver. Do you know that? The Bible says he delights to give to you. He delights in showing mercy to you. He loves you. God sent his, his son into the world. He gave his son for each one of us. Give cheerfully. And Paul says God is able to make grace abound to you when we cheerfully give to God so that you will be sufficient in all things and abound in every good work. You are sufficient in all things. Remember back to 1 Timothy 6. It said, godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. Contentment, that word in the Greek, is the same as sufficient here in 2 Corinthians. It's the only two times you see it in the Bible. It says you are sufficient in the needs of your life. Your mind is content on what you have. It says you have actually perfect conditions. And when you give cheerfully, the grace of God abounds in you and you'll be sufficient and you will be content. His grace is sufficient in you. The grace of God that was made available through Jesus Christ is all that we need. Why? Because this is not our home. Amen. 
This is not our home. We don't desire more possessions or more money. We only desire more of Jesus, and we are content because we've already been given the greatest gift that we could possibly receive in this life. Are you aware of that? We can cheerfully give because we have received so much from God. We have received confidence and hope and eternal life through Jesus. We have to have joy, friends, in giving because we have been blessed and we must desire to be a blessing to one another. We have received so much, can we also not give? We have received the grace of God, will we not also proclaim the grace of God to the world around us? Would you stand with me as we close? As we close, I just want to pray over you. And your heart's giving is a difficult topic sometimes. It can be a little cringy. But I only talk about it because the Bible talks about it. The Bible doesn't talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it. The Bible talks about it a lot. And I'll pray with each one of you as we close this time in this, this series, how we can be a blessing, we can make a difference in the world around us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray? I want to first pray with those that you'd be honest and say, I know I'm supposed to be content. I know it's the key, but I struggle to always want more. I always seem to want more than I need, more than I have, and I need help to remind myself that to be content in what God has already given me. If that's you this morning, you'd be honest. I just want to keep you in mind as we pray. Would you slip up your hand? Say, that is a struggle for me to be content right where I'm at. Yep, I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Yep. Lastly, I want to pray for those that you give. It's sometimes not your first instinct. And being cheerful when you do it is definitely not your first instinct. I understand I can be that way too. If you want God to stir up joy in your heart as you give and be a joyful giver for God, if that's you today, would you slip up your hand? I want to pray with you. Yep, I see the hand. I see that hand. I see those hands. Yep, I see those hands. Let's pray together, church. God, we thank you for your word, and we stand on it. Your promises are true. We know that you have a plan for each one of us. Help us to start with being content with where we are content with what we have. We know that you are the provider. You give all that we need, more than enough. You're the God of more than enough. So I pray, help us to live in godliness and contentment and trust you with the rest. Believe for you for the rest of it. And God, I pray that you would stir up joy in our hearts. The fact that we can give when we are people way wealthier than the majority of this world that we want to give joyfully and generously to further your kingdom, to bless someone that I may not see in this world, but I might get to see on the other side of heaven. Thank you for your joy. Thank you for giving so much to us, God. Thank you that before we even knew you, you loved us. Before we knew about you, Christ died for us. We celebrate that truth today. Whenever we give to honor you and to love one another. We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. The Gathering is a place where you can belong to a church that loves you, believe in the God who is bigger than you, and become who God created you to be. For updates, service times, or ways to get involved, 
check out thegathering.online. And if you enjoyed listening today, consider rating it or sharing it with a friend. We love you. The best is yet to come.